Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. so good to be here with you, and it's been really fun uh, having the first couple services, and you guys just seem like family already. Um, we're in a season right now where we get to travel around and do a lot of speaking in different churches, and some churches you go to are lively and, and vibrant, full of the Spirit like you guys, and then other places you go to, it's kind of like Ezekiel, uh, can these bones live, oh Lord? <laughs> I'm just thankful that uh, you guys just are... It's so loving, and uh, it's a joy to be here. Thank you so much, Nick, and uh, it's an honor to get to teach here today. Um, so we're, we're in a season right now, for my family and I. For 10 years, I was a pastor in Portland, Oregon, uh, where the riots come from, uh, if you've ever been out there. And uh, it was an amazing season, amazing community. And more recently, the Lord's called us to start a nonprofit. Uh, we're living here in Colorado now, so I guess I'm a Coloridian. Is that what you guys say? Yeah, so we're loving it so far. Someone asked me, they're like, do you like Colorado? And I said, well, ask me after our first winter, and then we'll answer it. But so far, it's been awesome. It's been cool to switch the, the ratio of rain to sun. You guys get like 300 days of sun a year in Portland it's the opposite. It's 300 days of rainy year. The weather there is like Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, <clears throat> Colorado, I hear, is definitely different than that. So anyway, we're loving it. Uh, we started a nonprofit called Pursuing Faith. Uh, if you're interested in what we're up to, uh, you can see our website, pursuingfaith.org. Uh, but writing, <clears throat> have a new book coming out in April. And uh, right now, we're just in the season where doing a lot of speaking and talking uh, into this issue of faith and doubt. I'm sure you guys have noticed this, but there is an epidemic of, and I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about there's an epidemic of doubt and deconstruction that's sweeping our nation right now. And over this last year, it's gotten really, really intense. We're seeing a wave of people, uh, particularly the emerging generation, Gen Z, millennials, uh, who are leaving the faith, leaving church. Uh, if you go on social platforms, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, you'll see thousands and thousands and thousands of stories, hashtag deconstruction, where people are saying, I no longer identify as a Christian. I, I'm no longer going to church. Uh, Well-known former evangelicals are coming out now as ex-evangelicals, New York Times, just a couple months ago, did a whole article on this phenomenon. Washington Post, a few weeks ago, same thing. Noticing how Christians in America, particularly young people, are leaving the faith in record numbers. And it's for that reason that the Lord has us in this new season of, we gotta talk about this. This is an urgent issue. If you're a middle schooler, high schooler, college age, you know exactly what I'm talking about because maybe you've walked through this, maybe you are in it, maybe friends you know, uh, classmates, uh, roommates are in that same space. Uh, if you're a, a parent, we, we're a parent of a 16-year-old, your kids are going to walk through seasons like this, almost guaranteed. 85% of high schoolers who graduate and raised in the church, 
going to youth group, 85% will leave the church. Now, many come back usually when they have their first kid because they're like, I want my kid to learn the Bible. But many don't. 85% abandon the faith when they leave high school. Uh, if you're a grandparent, I, I had a number of conversations after the first two services saying, yeah, my grandkids are walking through this. So we need to have the tools to know how to respond to this, what the Bible has to say, and this is what Nick invited me to come and talk about. So let's dive in. We're going to start in the book of Jude. Um, Jude only has one chapter. So it's Jude verse 22. If you have a Bible nearby, you may want to grab it, or we're just going to put it for you on the screen, I believe. Jude verse 22, it's a simple verse, and yet there's so much here. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. A number of years ago, my daughter Amelia was at one of those trampoline parks. Do you guys have those here? I'm forever going to freak you out about them. <laughs> but she was there and bouncing away, and she took a, a bad land, and her leg broke in three different places. Compound break and uh, it was horrific, and I was there, called the ambulance, they come, and they sit next to her, walking her through this, giving her medicine, putting her on a stretcher, putting her in the uh, ambulance, taking her off to the hospital, and I remember how these guys just cared for her and loved her when she broke her bone. In Jude verse 22, the word mercy was used in the ancient world to describe a physician caring for a broken bone. In other words, our posture towards those who doubt in the church, our kids, friends, roommates, is not to be one of harsh cynicism, but rather to be one of compassionate, merciful grace. Now, there are some people when we talk about doubt they immediately kind of get a glazed look over their eyes and they say, well, I don't know what you're talking about because I've never been through a season of doubt. And those who have that story, I know people in my life who it's like they've never doubted. I kind of envy that. Um, you know, the kinds of people that when you say, when did you first become a Christian? And they look at you and they're like, I don't know, I've always been. They were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb. They just came out into the world speaking in tongues and haven't looked back since. And if that's your story, I think that's beautiful. Own it. It's amazing. But when you look at the stats, the vast majority of people inevitably will go through a season of doubt. Doubt is the moment when you're sitting next to a loved one in the hospital and they're suffering or hurting and you wonder, Lord, why? Earlier this year, my wife, Elisa, she suffered a spontaneous lung collapse, almost took her life. And she's in the hospital there for several weeks. And there were points after different surgeries she had to have to try and fix this problem, where she's gasping for air, tears are coming to her eyes because it's so painful. And you go through stuff like that. You lose a loved one. Our mother-in-law, uh, she passed away on, on Christmas. We celebrated Christmas with her and her husband. Go home, a few hours later, she passed away. And many, many people have lost people over the last couple years. And you walk through seasons like that, and it's going to raise doubts. You're gonna have questions. 
Doubt is a moment when maybe you're studying science and at a surface level, it may make certain parts of the Christian story look implausible. Doubt is the moment when you pray and you hear nothing but crickets in return. Doubt is the moment when maybe you see hypocrisy in the church or dysfunction in the church. Not this church because you guys are healthy. Amazing church here. But we all know what it's like to be a part of different communities and you see politics or scandal or division or gossip and man, that can shake your faith. You know, I, I met a guy a few years ago. I hadn't seen him at church for a while. And I'm like, hey, you should come back. And his answer was really cliche. He said, no, the church is full of hypocrites. To which I said, there's always room for one more. We, we'd love to welcome you back, right? But I understand it. Like as a pastor, and you, you, see, you see issues in the church and issues in our life. And that can shake people's faith. We're seeing a lot of people leave the church actually for this very reason right now. Uh, doubt is the moment when you're reading scripture. Have you ever come across parts of the Bible and you're like, this raises way more questions than answers. Have you ever done a, a read through the Bible in a year program and you start in Genesis and it's, yeah, you're like really motivated. It's fast moving. There's lots of stories. And then you get to Exodus and that's still cool. And if you miss a chapter, you can watch the movie. But then you get to the book of Leviticus and you come across these parts of sacrifice and blood and verses like, thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and you put him outside. <laughs> how many, how many read-through-the-Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? And, and there are many people who are going through Scripture. Maybe you've been there too. And you're like, I don't know what to do with this war in the Old Testament or this theology that I don't fully understand. This is why a philosopher, Michael Novak, he said, doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. We breathe, James K.A. Smith, he's a Christian philosopher, he said, we breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. Doubt I would argue, is part of the complicated, enigmatic mess of what it means to be human. It's why two-thirds, according to a recent survey, two-thirds of American Christians say they struggle with doubt on a regular basis, which is 15% higher from 10 years ago. And I would argue that number has gone through the roof over this last year because of all the stuff that's been happening in our nation. What do we do with that? How do we respond when people we know and love and care who maybe should be here at church today, but they've told you they no longer believe. What is our posture? What does the Bible have to say? How should the church react? And typically what I've noticed, maybe you have too, is that when someone doubts their faith, they're usually given two options and neither option is very good. Option number one is to idolize doubt. And this is the movement that I'm seeing happen all across the nation right now. The key word here is deconstruction. So, and it's a very trendy thing. People are told, hey, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have uncertainties, if you're struggling with something in the church, the best thing to do is just leave it all together. And so what we're seeing is people throw out the baby with the bathwater, deconstructing their faith, deconstructing what they were raised believing. Now, let me just say this, and this could be a whole other conversation that would take hours. We won't go there, but 
Deconstruction in some cases can be healthy if it's bringing you back to a more Jesus-centered faith. I mean, if, if there's termites in the wall, it's probably a good idea to deconstruct that wall and rebuild it. And, and sometimes what we're seeing in culture right now and with young people especially who are wrestling with their faith is there are legitimate things that they're noticing and observing in church culture, American church culture, and they're like, something's off here, something's wrong here. It needs to be rethought. It needs to be reconsidered. That kind of thoughtful deconstruction can be a very healthy thing, but... If it's just deconstruction for the sake of, I don't like my pastor, or I don't like American church's take on politics, or I'm kind of angsty towards my parents right now, or whatever, that kind of deconstruction can actually lead you to a place of profound emptiness and loneliness. I mean, consider, okay, this building, beautiful building, beautiful view, by the way, of the Rocky Mountains. Now, if you took out the walls, if you took out the roof, if you deconstructed this building, well, sooner or later, you're not going to have a place to meet. But everyone needs something to live in, especially in Colorado in winter, I hear, right? Everyone needs a house, right? Everyone needs a worldview. Everyone has a worldview, inevitably. Everyone needs an anchor for their soul that's going to guide them through difficult times. Everyone needs a way to process life's grief. Everyone needs a worldview. So if it's just deconstruct, hey, throw it all out, walk away, where that road inevitably lives is they're standing on a bare patch of dirt and it's freezing cold outside and they're like, I don't know what to do here. Nietzsche, he, he put it this way. He said, if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss begins to stare into you. Everyone needs a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. And if it's just deconstruction for the sake of a cultural fad, that actually can lead to a place of profound uncertainty and profound loneliness. Now, that's one option. Another option that I see, especially in not this church culture, you guys have an incredibly healthy church, but in certain church cultures where it's more legalistic, is not so much to idolize doubt, it's to demonize doubt. Maybe you've been a part of a church like this. I know I have in the past. And here the ethos is, hey, if you have doubts, if you have uncertainties, questions, whatever, well, you better not ask them here, <laughs> right? Church is the place you just show up, put on the happy face, sing the songs, throw in some money, go your way. But if you have questions about God, faith, Jesus, Christianity, take them elsewhere. And what happens in that kind of setting is that those who struggle with doubt, those doubts aren't going away. What they do is suppress them because they don't want to be judged. Suppress doubt, though, always inevitably reemerges. And in a form five years from now, 10 years from now, more toxic than before. I think doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. And it's not until we drag it into the light that it can be incredibly life-giving. In fact, this is the big thesis of my book. Doubt can be an opportunity to experience a gritty, raw, vulnerable, authentic relationship with God. As John Wesley said, the higher the hill, the stronger the wind, the higher the life, so much more is the opposition. And in those seasons of life where you feel yourself being battered by doubt and questions, I think that can be a sign that your faith is wanting to grow. I think that can be a sign that you want a faith that is your own. And in there is opportunity. 
But to get there, we need to realize what doubt is. And this was a huge eye-opener for me a number of years ago because I went through a season in my life where I almost lost my faith. I share that in the book. And I began to realize as I looked in Scripture years later, oh, wow, doubt is actually different than unbelief. Think of faith as a spectrum. On one hand, we have faith, which is where Jesus wants us to be. Question, what is the opposite of faith? Now, many people automatically would say, oh, it's doubt. No, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Unbelief in the Bible is a sin. Doubt, however, is kind of, well, think of a river. You have two banks, right? Doubt is kind of the middle murky space in between. It all depends how you process your doubts, how you deal with your doubts. It's why the Bible says, show mercy to the doubter because they're in a vulnerable space and their doubts, if they let it, can bring them to deeper faith or their doubts can actually cause them to sabotage their faith and lead them to a place of unbelief. And I began to study the Bible on this and I began to realize, oh my goodness, the Bible actually uses different words to describe this process. In fact, let me just geek out with you for just a minute here. The word doubt in, in the New Testament, one of the words for it is diakrino in the Greek language. And it literally means to separate or to be torn. Uh, in Latin, it's the word dubitare, which means to be torn in two. The idea of doubt in scripture is your heart, your mind, your life, your soul is being torn between two different polarities. One being, Lord, I believe you, I trust you. The other being, I just saw this messed up situation in a church and it's rocking my faith. Or my wife is struggling with cancer. Or someone I know just committed suicide. Or I don't know what to do with this part of scripture that seems so confusing. You're being torn between what you think you know is true about God and some experience that you've just had. Now, the word unbelief is a different word. In the Greek language, it's the word apostia. And apostia means an unwillingness to believe. You know, for several years, my, my family and I, we lived in Oxford. And Oxford, kind of known for a couple of things, one being the epicenter of kind of an atheist movement. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, lived a stone's throw away from where I studied. Uh, I didn't throw stones, but um, there were times like I, I'd sit in a lecture by him, and he's a passionate, passionate atheist. In fact, uh, he, he wouldn't identify so much as atheism as anti-theism. And in one of his lectures on atheism, someone asked a question, and I thought it was so illuminating. They said, Professor Dawkins, is there anything that would change your mind about God? Is there anything that would cause you to believe? And you know what he said? No. He said, even if I stepped outside and a giant hand appeared in the sky and God wrote Yahweh or something, he said, even then I wouldn't believe. I'd just write it off to some you know, mental disorder or something. And that moment was kind of illuminating for me because I realized what was being advocated first was a worldview, but it, mean, it meant his faith wasn't falsifiable, which as a scientist, that's a, that's a really, really big problem. You see, for some people, it's not so much I'm struggling, I'm uncertain, I'm trying to figure this out. It's more a resolve. I've decided I do not believe. This is my worldview. 
This is why in scripture, the word unbelief is associated with sin. You can check out Mark chapter five for an example of that. This is why as well, Jude 22 says, we show mercy to the doubter because the doubter, they're not necessarily in that place of hardened unbelief, but they're in a place where a bone has been broken. Their heart has been severed. Their worldview is being disrupted. They just went through an experience or they're struggling with some theology or philosophy. They don't know what to do with this issue. And the Bible says, show mercy to the person who's in that space. And do you realize all throughout scripture, you see example after example of people who wrestled with doubt. If you're there today or someone you know is in that place today, you are not alone. Moses, he was there. Habakkuk, he had thorny questions about God's justice. David, read the book of Psalms. Question after question after question. Uh, Jacob in the book of Genesis, he wrestled with God all night long. He was the world's first, if you're a fan of Nacho Libre, the world's first luchador, right? Wrestles with God all night long. And then God changed his name. Or Paul, who said, I have a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. The list goes on and on. Psalm 73, I think of Asaph, he wrote that Psalm. And in Psalm 73, he begins by saying, truly God is what? Good. We as Christians love that. God is good. We sing it. I was at a church not too long ago and it's a larger church in the South and the pastor gets up and in front of all these people, he's like, God is good. And the congregation, they respond all the time, God is good. It's like this back and forth thing. Christians love that verse for good reason. You know, the goodness of God is a basis of our theology. But then we fail many times to read verse two, where Asaph says, as for me, my feet almost slipped. And you keep reading this Psalm. And what you find is the story of a man who really had some questions, some things that he was unsure about. And it's fascinating that he would use that metaphor, as for me, my feet almost slipped. A few years ago, I went rock climbing, first and last time I think I'll ever do that. I don't know if any rock climbers in the house today. It's quite the experience. I was in Bend, Oregon, and I'm up a couple hundred feet, and at one point my foot slipped out. Now, fortunately, I was you know, tethered in, but my whole body swung out. I had my one foot like this, another hand like this. I swing out, I look down. That moment, you know that feeling where your stomach's like, oh, right? It's disorienting. Doubt is disorienting. It's a moment when you, you don't know if you're gonna be able to hold on any longer. As for me, my feet almost slipped. You know, C.S. Lewis, he went through a season in his life where his faith, began to fail. He went through a season where his feet began to slip. His wife, Joy, he, he was married to her for just a few short years. He, he called them the happiest years of his life. And then she got cancer. And after years of battling with cancer, his wife, Joy, passed away. And the grief that he experienced was the most profound pain he had ever gone through. In fact, shortly after her death, he wrote a book called The Grief Observed. Have any of you read A Grief Observed? 
Okay, a few of you have. Uh, just, just to warn you, if you ever check it out, it's like really dark. It's like hashtag Eeyore vibes. It's a really, it's a hard book. Why? Because he's very honest about his grief. He's very honest about the questions that he has. And in that book, he just begins to pour out his pain. He's like, God, where were you? Why didn't you answer my prayer? I came to the door of prayer just like you told me to, but I just got a slam door in my face. Another point in the book, he calls God the great iconoclast. My view of you is being shattered and disrupted and shaken. And you read this book, you're like, oh my gosh, is this the same guy who wrote Mere Christianity? He's struggling, he's hurting. But here's the thing, and this is why if you read the book, you gotta keep reading, because it starts out in this really dark place. But as he begins to process his pain, as he begins to wrestle with his grief and questions, you see a change, kind of in his apologetic in a certain way, certainly a change in his relationship with God, where you discover less of an emphasis upon bullet point certainty and more of an emphasis upon trust and relationship. And this is something that I'm learning and anyone, anyone in this room who you've walked with Jesus through the highs and lows of life, you've discovered is that what God is after is not necessarily that we would be the kinds of people who are like, oh, I'm the Bible answer guy. I have the answers to all the questions that you have. It's not so much that that God is after. I think deep faith is learning how to live with the unanswered questions and yet saying, still will I trust you. Lewis wrote another book. It's called Till We Have Faces. Has anyone read Till We Have Faces in this room? Okay, it's fascinating. Everyone knows mere Christianity. Do you know Lewis was once asked, hey, what's the favorite book you've ever written? <laughs> Fascinating question. And Lewis's response was, it's Till We Have Faces. It's a masterpiece. It's, it's a fiction, myth retold, but it's hauntingly beautiful. And there's this line in that book that I think really summarizes where Lewis landed in his relationship with God. He said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer, because you yourself are the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In other words, after wrestling and wondering and hurting and struggling, I've discovered what my heart really wants, Lord, through my doubt, through my pain, through my hurt, what my heart really wants is more of you. This is why the Bible says show mercy to the doubter because the person who is doubting at its core, what they really are longing for is an authentic relationship with God. What they're really thirsting for is more of the living water. What they're really desiring is not just a faith inherited from their parents or even church community. What they really want is a faith that is truly theirs, to know God, to experience God, to walk with God through the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows of life. There's a theologian in England, um, Pastor Nick probably knows about him because he studied uh, at the London School of Theology, but the, pastor's, uh, the author's name is Christopher Wright. He wrote a book called The God I Don't Understand. I highly recommend that read. In that book, he has this fascinating line. He says, 
it seems to me that the older I get, the less I think I really understand God, which is not to say that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on, my love and my trust grow deeper. Let's think about this for just a minute. Isn't it true that in any relationship, tension, doubts, questions are part of the process of making that relationship more real, raw, and authentic. I, I talked to a guy a while back and he's like 30 years old and desperately wanted to get married. He's like single, really wants to mingle, but had some really bad relationships along the way. And I hadn't seen him for a bit and he shows up at church. He's like, hey, I want you to know I'm dating someone right now. I'm like, cool, where is she? He's like, well, she's not a Christian. She doesn't go to church. I'm like, oh, so you're missionary dating. Okay, let's talk about that. And so we started having this conversation and, and we kind of begin to peel back some of the layers at one point in the conversation. I'm like, so why are you dating? You know, if there's all these differences of worldview. He's like, well, to be honest, Dominic, this is what he said, she's so hot. And I'm like, so is hell. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about that. So we began to talk about that. We had the fascinating conversation. But then he threw out another thing that really kind of took me off guard. He said, well, we've been dating six months. We haven't had a single argument. Isn't that great? And I said, I, I don't think that's actually a good sign. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, she's really getting to know you. Um, and if you're getting to know her, there's there's going to be issues and conflict and tension. That actually could be a good thing because it means you're getting to know her. You're taking it to the next level, right? If it's just surface level, sure, everything's good. Everything's happy, clappy. But if you want to go deep or if you want to use uh, Wesley's metaphor, if you want to go higher, the higher the hill, the stronger the wind, tension is part of it. So I think about my own wife, Elisa. We've been married now 21 years. Amazing. She's put up with me that long. I know a lot about her, Right? She's a morning person, uh, she loves coffee, she loves to garden, uh, she used to be a cat person, then she repented and we got a golden doodle. Uh, there's a lot I know about her, but still, even after 21 years, there, there are things, questions that emerge, or I'll see her respond to a situation in a way that blows me away. The way she walked through the lung collapse and those weeks in the hospital and the courage that she showed, it was, Beautiful to see. Or, or maybe I'll see her you know, respond to someone who's hurting and just so much compassion and grace. And I, I see a new depth to her character. Or, or I'll see her share a story about her own life. And wow, I didn't know that. And you see, those questions, those things that I didn't know are all part of the process of growing in relationship. Because if I knew everything about my wife, literally, if I knew every placement of every atom, every thought, if I knew exactly where she was at any given moment, not only would that be slightly creepy, um, it would hinder the progression of love. True love is the pursuit of love. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. And what if God has rigged the system in such a way where questions are part of the process, not so that we abandon our faith, but so that we pursue a deeper faith? What if, like Lewis, we begin to discover you yourself are the answer? I thought I just wanted a list of every single answer as to why I'm going through this. And sure, as I read and study and pray, I can find some of these answers, but what my heart really wants is more of you. What if 
That is why God allows you or I or those that you love to go through those times of unanswered questions because he's wanting to do something deeper and lead you into a place of intimacy with him, the kind of relationship with him that maybe you've never had before. It's more gritty. It's more vulnerable. It looks like wrestling with God all night. It looks like John the Baptist languishing in a prison who had his own doubts and questions. It, it looks like Asaph who says, as for me, my feet almost slipped. But it's there that we discover and encounter God in such a way that our faith comes alive and your faith becomes your own. I leave you with this story. So I mentioned earlier, I was a missionary in a country called Vanuatu for three years. Has, has anyone heard of Vanuatu in this room? It's like two of you. I guess it was on Survivor a number of years ago. Um, Vanuatu is known as being the world's most primitive country. So I lived there in the jungle, no electricity, no running water. I was in my early 20s learning about their culture, learning about their language. They, they spoke a language there uh, called Bislama. And Bislama, it's just this fascinating concoction of words. It's like a little bit of English, a little bit of French, a little bit of pigeon thrown in. Um, the word slingshot. So there's no whole foods there. Um, if you want food, you have to go kill it. So they had slingshots. The word slingshot in Bislama is elastic blong shootem pigeon. <laughs> So it gives you a sense of, of this language. Uh, my favorite word by far is piano. Um, in Bislama, you wouldn't say piano, you would say, Hemi one big fella box, where he got white teeth blong him, Moe got black teeth blong him, most suppose you kill him teeth blong him, Hemi sing out long you. That's the word piano. <laughs> so you can imagine I'm teaching the Bible to a bunch of college guys. And I come across the word propitiation. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I describe this in Bislama? But one of the things I loved about living there is because it's so simple and there is no technology in the place we lived is that you really get to know people well. Um, they had this thing every single night um, where they'd sit around a fire because there's literally nothing else to do in Vanuatu. Every single night, we'd all sit around a fire, about 30 of us or so, and they called it talk story. 2021 story is what you do on Instagram. There they have a novel idea. It's actually with real people. Um, and every single night, someone would share a story from their past or something they experienced. After I'd been there a few months, they said, okay, Dominic, it's your turn. Tell us a story. I'm like, what do you wanna know? They said, what is your favorite place in America? And without thinking, I should have, but without thinking, I blurted out, Disneyland. And they looked at me, they're like, what's, What's Disneyland? Keep in mind, it's like Stone Age kind of technology there. They had no conception of, of what this place was like. And so immediately I knew I was in way over my head. So in Bislama, I'm trying to describe what Disneyland is. I said, well, um, there's, a, there's a big castle in, in California, but there's no word for castle in Bislama. The closest they have is big fella hut. I said, there's a big fella hut in Anaheim, California. They're like, how big is the hut? I said, it's like 100 feet tall. They're like, whoa, already their minds are blown. 100 foot tall hut in California. And they said, who lives in the hut? And I said, well, um, there's a mouse and um, his name is Mickey. But the problem is there's no word for mouse in their language. The closest they have is big fella rat. 
So I said, there's a big fella rat who lives inside a big fella hut in California and his name is Mickey. And they said, how big is this rat? And I said, oh, he's like 10, 12 feet tall. And they're like, their eyes just got huge because rats were a massive problem in Vanuatu. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not a real rat. Um, there's someone inside the rat. And they're like, so he eats people? I'm like, no, 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 he doesn't eat people. He's like inside the, I'm trying Bislama. He's like in the skin of the rat and he talks through the rat and they're like, demon possession? And I'm like stumbling over my words. And, and so then I, I, I try and tell him about the, the cups, you know, the teacups. I'm like, well, a big fella cup. And they're like, why? <laughs> you sit inside the cup and you spin around and around. I completely had lost them by this point. And then they got real quiet. And one of them, he's like, Dominic, and he's totally serious. <laughs> he said, you must never go to Disneyland again. It is an evil place. And Mickey the rat is a witch doctor. Now maybe it's true about Mickey the rat, who knows? <laughs> so in my mind, I'm trying to describe the happiest place on earth. In their mind, it was a version of hell led by a mastermind slash witch doctor named Mickey. So we spent a good hour trying to unpack this. It went nowhere. And finally, towards the end, I'm like, okay, what's the only possible way that all these questions could be answered? To go, right? I was making hundred bucks a month as a teacher in Vanuatu. I had no money. But I said, look, if I had money, I'd buy y'all tickets, we'd get on a plane, we'd go. I'd take you to the big fella hut. You could meet Mickey. You could take a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like you, you could see it and experience it. Then maybe some of these questions could be resolved. You know, I, I think that sometimes in our walk with the Lord, those moments in life where we're kind of sitting around a fire. I think we're living in one right now in 2021 with the deconstruction we're seeing, the doubts that people are having, the struggles that maybe you're experiencing. And doubt is the moment, again, think Psalm 73, it's disorientation. Doubt is the moment where big fella hut, big fella rat, I don't know what to think about this anymore. I'm struggling, wrestling, I'm hurting. And in that moment, we have a choice. We can leave the fire, I'm out, see ya, I'm done with this. Or what if that moment of disorientation is the Spirit's invitation to say, pack your bags, let's go. I wanna take you further and farther and deeper than you've ever gone before. I wanna teach you what it means to trust. I wanna show you how to wrestle. I wanna invite you to be honest. I'm calling you to be my disciple, to have a faith that is your own. Show mercy to those who doubt. And no one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus. It's why when John the Baptist said, are you the one or should we look for another? Jesus turned to his disciples and said, that's the greatest prophet of all time. It's why when he sent out his disciples in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and it says some worshiped and some doubted. Isn't that a crazy verse? The resurrected Jesus was standing there. Some worshiped and some doubted. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, worshipers, you're here. Doubters, go home or at least go get more education or whatever. But Jesus sent them all out. And no matter where you're at on your faith journey, 
Jesus shows mercy to you. He loves you and he's calling you and the people that you know who are wrestling with their faith into a faith more beautiful, rich, vibrant, authentic than ever before. Hey, let's all stand up together. I'd love to pray for you guys and then we're gonna take communion. Father, I thank you so much for this beautiful church. Lord, thank you for Pastor Nick and the leaders here. Lord, thank you for the way you're using this community to be salt and light. And Lord, I know that every single one of us in our room, even, even right now, there are people that come into our mind, people that we know and love and care for who should be here, who are wrestling with their faith, who maybe have left the faith. God, right now, we just lift them before you. And we pray you'd show us, Lord, how we can be a faithful presence in their life, how we can love them and show mercy to them. And we pray, Father, that you would bring them back home. Lord, I pray for any in this room who maybe are hanging on by a thread, for any who feel like their feet are slipping and their faith is failing. God, we believe that even if our faith fails, you never do. And I pray, Lord, that you would even now just give them strength, that you would encourage them, that you would fill them with hope. And Lord, that their doubts and questions could actually be something that, like C.S. Lewis, would bring them to a place where their relationship with you is more vibrant than before. So Lord, we just surrender our hearts to you I pray that your spirit now would send us and use us. And Lord, give us the language and heart to know how to engage those who are struggling right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. It was so, so good to be with you guys today. Love to meet you afterwards. God bless you. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.